0: Chapter 18 of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, com. Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter 18. 1. Though he saw them twice daily, though he knew and amply discussed every detail of their expenditures, yet for weeks together, Babbitt was no more conscious of his children than of the buttons on his coat sleeves. The admiration of Kenneth Escott made him aware of Verona, She had become secretary to Mr. Gruensberg of the Gruensberg Leather Company. She did her work with the thoroughness of a mind which reveres details and never quite understands them. But she was one of the people who gave an agitating impression of being on the point of doing something desperate, of leaving a job or a husband, without ever doing it. Babbitt was so hopeful about Escott's hesitant adores, that he became the playful parent. When he returned from the Elks, he peered coyly into the living room and gurgled, "'Has your Kenny been here tonight?' He never credited Verona's protest. "'Why, Ken and I are just good friends, and we only talk about ideas. I don't have all this sentimental nonsense that would spoil everything.' It was Ted who most worried Babbitt. With conditions in Latin and English, but with a triumphant record in manual training, basketball, and organization of dances, Ted was struggling through his senior year in the East Side High School. At home. He was interested only when he was asked to trace some subtle ill in the ignition system of the car. He repeated to his tut-tutting father that he did not wish to go to college or law school in Babbitt. Was equally disturbed by his shiftlessness and by Ted's relations with Eunice Littlefield next door. Though she was the daughter of Howard Littlefield, that wrought-iron fact mill, that horse-faced priest of private ownership, Eunice was a midge in the sun. She danced into the house. She flung herself into Babbitt's lap when he was reading. She crumpled his paper and laughed at him when he adequately explained that he hated a crumpled newspaper as he hated a broken sales contract. She was seventeen now. Her ambition was to be a cinema actress. She did not merely attend the showing of every feature film. She also read the motion picture magazines, those extraordinary symptoms of the age of pep monthlies and weeklies, gorgeously illustrated with portraits of young women who had recently been manicure girls not very skillful manicure girls and who unless their every grimace had been arranged by a director could not have acted in the Easter cantata of the central methodist church magazines reporting quite seriously in interviews plastered with pictures and riding breeches and california bungalows the views on sculpture and international politics of blankly beautiful suspiciously beautiful young men Outlined the plots of films about pure prostitutes and kind-hearted train-robbers, and giving directions for making boot-blacks into celebrated scenario authors overnight. These authorities Eunice studied. She could, she frequently did, tell, whether it was in November or December, 1905, that Mac Harker, the renowned screen cowpuncher and bad man, began his public career as a chorus man in Oh, you naughty girlie! On the wall of her room, her father reported, she had pinned up twenty-one photographs of actors, but the signed portrait of the most graceful of the movie heroes she carried in her young bosom. Babbitt was bewildered by this worship of the new gods, and he suspected that Una smoked cigarettes. He smelled the cloying reek from upstairs, and heard her giggling with Ted. He never inquired, the agreeable child dismayed him. Her thin and charming face was sharpened by bobbed hair, her skirts were short, her stockings were rolled, and as she flew after Ted above the caressing silk were glimpses of soft knees which made babbitt uneasy and wretched that she should consider him old sometimes in the veiled life of his dreams when the fairy child came running to him she took on the semblance of Eunice Littlefield. Ted was motor-mad as Eunice was movie-mad. A thousand sarcastic refusals did not check his teasing for a car of his own. However lax he might be about early rising in the prosodity of Virgil, he was tireless and tinkering. With three other boys he bought a rheumatic Ford chassis, built an amazing racer body out of tin and pine, went skidding around corners in the perilous craft and sold it at a profit. Babbitt gave him a motorcycle and every Saturday afternoon with seven sandwiches and a bottle of Coca-Cola in his pockets, and Eunice perched eerily on the rumble seat. He went roaring off to distant towns. Usually Eunice and he were merely neighborhood chums and quarreled with a wholesome and violent lack of delicacy. But now and then, after the color and scent of a dance, they were silent together and a little furtive. Babbitt was worried. Babbitt was an average father. He was affectionate, bullying, opinionated, ignorant, and rather wistful. Like most parents, he enjoyed the game of waiting till the victim was clearly wrong, then virtuously pouncing. He justified himself by croaking, "'Well, Ted's mother spoils him. Got to be somebody who tells him what's what, and me. I'm elected the goat, because I try to bring him up a real... Decent human being, and not one of those sap heads. And lounge lizards. Of course, they all call me a grouch. Throughout, with the eternal human genius for arriving by the worst possible routes at surprisingly tolerable goals, Babbitt loved his son and warmed to his companionship and would have sacrificed everything for him, if he could have been sure of proper credit. Two, Ted was planning a party for his set in the senior class. Babbitt meant to be helpful and jolly about it from his memory of high school pleasures back in Catawba, He suggested the nicest games, going to Boston and charades with stewpans for helmets, and word games in which you were an adjective or a quality. When he was most enthusiastic, he discovered that they weren't paying attention. They were only tolerating him. As for the party, it was as fixed and standardized as the union club hop. There was to be dancing in the living room, a noble coalition in the dining room, and in the hall two tables of bridge for what Ted called the poor old dumbbells that you can't get to dance hardly more than half the time. Every breakfast was monopolized by conferences on the affair. No one listened to Babbitt's bulletins about the February weather or to his throat-clearing comments on the headlines. He said furiously, if i may be permitted to interrupt your engrossing private conversation d'ye you hear what i said Oh, don't be a spoiled baby ted and i have just as much right to talk as you have flared mrs babbitt on the night of the party he was permitted to look on when he was not helping matilda with the vichia ice cream and the petit fours He was deeply disquieted eight years ago when Verona had given a high school party. The children had been fearless gabbies. Now they were men and women of the world—very supercilious men and women. The boys condescended to Babbitt, they wore evening clothes, and with hot air they accepted cigarettes from silver cases. Babbitt had heard stories of what the Atlantic Club called goings-on at young parties of girls parking their corsets in the dressing-room, of cuddling and petting, and with a presumable increase in what was known as immorality. Tonight he believed the stories. These children seemed bold to him and cold. The girls wore misty chiffon, coral velvet or cloth of gold, and around their dipping bobbed hair were shining wreaths. He had it upon urgent and secret inquiry that no courses were known to be parked upstairs but certainly these eager bodies were not stiff with steel their stockings were of lustrous silk their slippers costly and unnatural their lips carmine, and their eyebrows penciled they danced cheek to cheek with the boys and babbitt sickened with apprehension and unconscious envy worst of them all was eunice littlefield and maddest of all of the boys was ted eunice was a flying demon she slid the length of the room her tender shoulders swayed her feet were deft as a weaver's shuttle she laughed and enticed babbitt to dance with her then he discovered the annex to the party the boys and girls disappeared occasionally and he remembered rumors of their drinking together from hip-pocket flasks he tiptoed around the house and in each of a dozen cars waiting in the street he saw the points of light from cigarettes from each of them hearing high giggles. He wanted to denounce them, but standing in the snow, peering around the dark corner, he did not dare. He tried to be tactful. When he returned to the front hall, he coaxed the boys, "'Say, uh, if any of you fellows are thirsty, there's some dandy ginger ale.' "'Oh, thanks,' they condescended. He sought his wife in the pantry and exploded. "'I'd like to go out there and throw some of those young pups out of the house.' They talk down to me, like I was the butler I'd like to—' "'I know,' she sighed. "'Only everybody says, all the mothers tell me, unless you stand for them. If you get angry because they go out on their cars and have a drink, they won't come to your house any more. And we wouldn't want Ted left out of things, would we?' He announced that he would be enchanted to have Ted left out of things, and hurried back in to be polite, lest Ted be left out of things. But he resolved if he found that the boys were drinking, he would. Well, he'd hand them something that would surprise them. While he was trying to be agreeable to large-shouldered young bullies, he was earnestly sniffing at them. Twice he caught the reek of Prohibition Time whiskey. But then it was only twice. Dr. Howard Littlefield lumbered in. He had come in a mood of solemn parental patronage to look on. Ted and Eunice were dancing, moving together like one body. Littlefield gasped. He called Eunice. There was a whispered dialogue, and Littlefield explained to Babbitt that Eunice's mother had a headache and needed her. She went off in tears. Babbitt looked after them furiously. That old devil! Getting Ted into trouble and Littlefield, a conceited old gasbag, acting like it was Ted that was the bad influence. Later he smelled whiskey on Ted's breath. After the civil farewell to the guests, the row was terrific. A thorough family scene, like an avalanche, devastating and without reticences. Babbitt thundered, Mrs. Babbitt wept, Teb was unconvincingly defiant, and Verona in confusion as to whose side she was taking. For several months there was coolness between the Babbitts and the Littlefields, each family sheltering their lamb from the wolf cub next door. Babbitt and Littlefield still spoke in pontifical periods about motors and the Senate, but they kept bleakly away from mention of their families. Whenever Eunice came to the house, she discussed with pleasant intimacy the fact that she had been forbidden to come to the house, and Babbitt tried, with no success whatever, to be fatherly and advisory to her. 3. "'Gosh, all fish hooks. Ted wailed to Eunice as they wolfed hot chocolate, lumps of Nugent, and an assortment of glazed nuts in the mosaic splendor of the royal Drug Store. It gets me why Dad doesn't just pass out from being so pokey. Every evening he sits there, about half asleep, and if Roan or I say, Oh, come on, let's do something. He doesn't even take the trouble to think about it. He just yawns and says, No, this suits me right here. He doesn't. No, there's any fun going anywhere. I suppose he must be thinking same as you and I do, but gosh, there's no way of telling it. I don't believe that outside the office and playing a little bum golf on Saturday, he knows there's anything in the world to do except just keep sitting there and sitting there every night, not wanting to go anywhere, not wanting to do anything, thinking us kids are crazy, sitting there, Lord. 4. If he was frightened by Ted's slackness, Babbitt was not sufficiently frightened by Verona. She was too safe. She lived too much in the neat little airless room of her mind. Kenneth Escott and she were always underfoot. When they were not at home, conducting their cautiously radical courtship over sheets of statistics, they were trudging off to lectures by authors and Hindu philosophers and Swedish lieutenants. Gosh! babbitt wailed to his wife as they walked home from the fogarty's bridge party it gets me how roe and that fellow can be so pokey they sit there night after night whenever he isn't working and they don't know if there's any fun in the world all talk and discussion lord sitting there sitting there night after night not wanting to do anything thinking i'm crazy because i like to go out and play a fist of cards sitting there Gosh. Then around the swimmer board, by struggling through the perpetual surf of family life, newcomers swelled. 5. Babbitt's father and mother-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. Henry T. Thompson, rented their old house in the Bellevue district and moved into the Hotel Hatton, that glorified boarding-house filled with widows, red plush furniture, and the sound of ice-water pitchers. They were lonely there, and every Sunday evening the Babbitts had to dine with them on fricasseed chicken, discouraged celery, and cornstarch ice cream, and afterwards sit polite and restrained in the hotel lounge while a young woman violinist played songs from the German Via Broadway. Then Babbitt's own mother came down from Catawaba to spend three weeks. She was a kind woman and magnificently uncomprehending. She congratulated the convention defying Verona as being a nice, loyal homebody without all these ideas that so many girls seem to have nowadays. And when Ted filled the differential with grease out of pure love of mechanics and filthiness, she rejoiced that he was so handy around the house and helping his father and all and not going out with the girls all the time and trying to pretend to be a society fellow babbitt loved his mother and sometimes he rather liked her but he was annoyed by her christian patience and he was reduced to pulpiness when she discoursed about a quite mythical hero called your father you won't remember it georgie you were such a little fellow at the time my I, I remember just how you looked that day with your goldy-brown curls and your lace collar, you always were such a tainty child, and kind of a puny and sickly, and you loved pretty things so much, and the red tassels of your little booties and all, and your father was taking us to church, and a man stopped us and said, Major, so many of the neighbors used to call your father Major. Of course, he was only a private in the war, but everybody knew that he was because of the jealousy of his captain, and he ought to have been a high-ranking officer. He had the natural ability to command that so very few men have. And this man came out into the road and held up his hand and stopped the buggy and said, Major, he said, there's a lot of folks around here that have decided to support Colonel Scannel for Congress and we want you to join us, meeting people the way you do in the store. You could help us a lot. While your father just looked at him and said, I certainly shall do nothing of the sort. I don't like his politics, he said. Well, the man, Captain Smith, they used to call him, and heaven only knows why, because he had the shadow of vestige of a right to be called Captain, or any other title. This Captain Smith said, we'll make it hot for you if you don't stick by your friends major well you know how your father was and this smith knew it too he knew what a real man he was and he knew your father knew the political situation from a to z and he ought to have seen that here was one man he couldn't impose on but he went on trying and hinting and trying till your father spoke up and said to him captain smith he said i have a reputation around these parts for being one who is amply qualified to mind his own business and let other folks mind theirs and with that he drove on and left the fellow standing there in the road like a bump on a log babbitt was most exasperated when she revealed his boyhood to the children he had it seemed been fond of barley-sugar had worn the loveliest little pink bow in his curls and corrupted his own name to goo goo he heard though he did not officially hear ted admonishing tinga come on now kid stick the lovely pink bow in your curls and beat it down to breakfast or goo goo will jaw your head off babbitt's half-brother martin and his wife and youngest baby came down from catawaba for two days martin bred cattle and they ran the dusty general store he was proud of being a free-born, independent American of the good old Yankee stock. He was proud of being honest, blunt, ugly, and disagreeable. His favorite remark was, How much you pay for that? He regarded Verona's books, Babbitt's silver pencil, and flowers on the table as citified extravagances, and said so. Babbitt would have quarreled with him, but for his gawky wife and the baby whom Babbitt teased and poked fingers at, and addressed. I think this baby's a bum. Yes sir, I think this little baby's a bum. He's a bum. Yes sir, he's a bum. That's what he is. He's a bum. This baby's a bum. He's nothing but a bum. That's what he is, a bum. All the while Verona and Kenneth Escott held long inquiries into espeniology. Ted was a disgraced rebel and Tinka, aged 11, was demanded that she be allowed to go to the movies thrice a week, like all the girls. Babbitt raged. I'm sick of it, have to carry three generations, whole damn bunch lean on me, pay half of mother's income, listen to Henry T, listen to Myra's worrying, people ain't the mat, and get called an old grouch for trying to help the children, all of 'em depending on me and picking on me, and not a damn one of 'em grateful. No relief, no credit, and no help from anybody, and to keep it up for good lord knows how long. He enjoyed being sick in February, he was delighted by their consternation that he the rock should give way he had eaten a questionable clam for two days he was languorous and petted and esteemed he was allowed to snarl long me long without reprisals he lay on the sleeping porch and watched the winter sun slide along the taut curtains turning the rusty khaki to pale blood-red the shadow of the draw rope was dense black in an enticing ripple on the canvas. He found pleasure in the curve of it, sighed as the fading light blurred it. He was conscious of life and a little sad, with no virgil glinches before whom to set his face in resolute optimism, or beheld and half admitted that he beheld his way of life as incredibly mechanical, mechanical business, a brisk selling of badly built houses, mechanical religion. A dry, hard church, shut off from the real life of the streets, inhumanly respectable as a top hat, mechanical golf and dinner parties and bridge and conversation, save with Paul Riesling, mechanical friendships, backslapping and jocular, never daring to essay the test of quietness. He turned uneasily in bed. He saw the years the brilliant winter days and all the long, sweet afternoons, which were meant for summery meadows lost in such brittle pretentiousness. He thought of telephoning about leases, of cajoling men he hated, of making business calls and waiting in dirty anterooms, hat on knee, yawning at fly-spec calendars, being polite to office boys. "'I don't hardly want to go back to work,' he prayed. I'd like to. I don't know. But he was back the next day, busy and of doubtful temper. End of chapter 18